One of the things we elders do together in our Tuesday morning meetings is study and pray together. We want to grow in our knowledge of God's word. We want to grow in the application of it in our lives. We want to grow in our skill of handling God's word in our ministry to you. And we want to grow in ways in which God's word applies to our church. And so sometimes we're surprised by what we hadn't seen in the Bible before. Sometimes we're surprised that some things require a bit of a course correction if we try to get ourselves more closely aligned with the scriptures. And that brings us to this morning's message. Today, we're going to take a small break from our series in the book of Acts for this week and next week to talk about something that the elders have been studying together for over a year, uh, something that we have come to a conclusion on, and something that we think needs changing uh, about how we view the local church and how we do church together. I won't tell you what it is up front. I will tell you up front that what we've concluded and what we see changing at our church is both very small, minimal, and massive. How's that? I'm sure it's comforting and alarming. Uh, by the way, if you're visiting with us this morning, you should just know that you're visiting on a, a bit of an unusual Sunday. Usually we're going through a book of the Bible bit by bit. We don't usually have these one-off kind of messages. And we're not usually talking so much about who we are and what we're doing and changes and things like that. So you're here on a good Sunday to check us out. We're doing something a little bit different with something like a, a family room meeting. Uh, we're glad you're here with us. You're welcome to sit in on it. Uh, but know that this, is, this week and next week will be a little bit different than what we normally do. Anyone my age or older will likely know that Harry S. Truman, the 33rd president, had a, a sign on the front of his desk that said, The buck stops here. It was meant to communicate that decisions, the buck, problems, were not simply going to get passed on to the next guy and the next guy and the next guy. He was going to make a decision if he had to, and he was going to accept responsibility for that decision. So a question the elders have been asking together is along similar lines. In the church, the buck stops where? How would you answer that? What's the fill in the blank? At Desert Springs Church, the buck stops with me, the preaching pastor? No, it doesn't. Does the buck stop with the staff who lead various ministries on a day-to-day, full-time level? No, it doesn't. Does the buck stop with the elders of the church? Well, yes, in many ways. In most of our weekly meetings, we are making decisions for the whole church. And we don't apologize for that. Elders are to shepherd and lead. Those are words in 1 Peter 5. They are overseers, according to Acts 20. They oversee things. But is that all that can be said? Is, is there no more to it than a simple two-down structure of elders and non-elders? Do the elders decide everything in a church? Does the buck always and only stop with the elders of a church? Well, one passage in particular that's caught our attention in recent days is Matthew 16. Would you turn there? Matthew 16. 
will be in Matthew 16 for most of our time today, and then a bit in Matthew 18, a related passage. Here in Matthew 16, in the middle, there are some very important verses. It's the first time in the New Testament that the word church is used. Church is only used a couple of times in the gospel accounts, both in Matthew, Matthew 16 and 18, and they are massively important. Some have called these verses Jesus' charter of the church, his charter, where Jesus describes the church's founding rights and privileges, its mission and its responsibilities. That's what a charter is. Jesus speaks of the church's charter in terms of a metaphor of keys. They're like keys. We'll ask the question today, who holds the keys? We'll also have to ask, what are they? Why does Jesus give keys to anyone? And on what basis does he give them? So look down in your Bibles. Matthew 16, starting in verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven." We'll stop there. Now, I suspect that already some of you are trying to guess where this is going, trying to guess what, in light of how I introduced these verses and what these verses say, what changes are coming here to this church. Well, if you can, try to hold off on that guesswork for now. Let me presume upon your patience and walk through this passage a step at a time. Starting with one, the profession of the Christ. There's the profession of the Christ in verse 16. It's Peter's profession, or you could call it confession, where he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the basis for the church-building language that Jesus talks about in just a couple verses later. Now, each of the four Gospels tell us who Jesus is right up front, at least for us, the readers, we're told he's the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham, etc. But for those in the story, they're figuring it out as they go. It's an unfolding drama of discovering who this guy is. Is he simply a teacher? Is he simply a miracle worker? Is he possibly even one of the prophets of old come back from the dead? And so rumors have been swirling about as Jesus travels around and teaches and heals and, 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 and does various things. People begin to say, maybe this is Elijah. Uh, some say, oh, this is Jeremiah or John the Baptist back from the dead. But then Jesus asks this very important direct question to just the apostles. But who do you say that I am? And Peter answers for the group. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Again, the readers knew that. But Peter 
is the first person in the story to say these words and identify Jesus at this level. He understands Jesus isn't merely a prophet or a miracle worker or a messenger from God. He's the Christ. That is, he's the Messiah. That is, he is the anointed one. And that means he's king. He's the Davidic king. He's that one that was promised long ago and the one for whom they had been waiting all this time. He's the conclusion of the story. He's the answer to the problem. That's what Christ means. It's well loaded in its, in its richness. And he's the son of the living God. He's that final Davidic king, the son of David and God's own son. He's son of God and of very God himself. Now this confession, this profession that Peter makes is the basis for the church. There's a reason Peter makes this profession and then Jesus gives promises about the church in what follows. This is how the church is going to be built. It's when people come to realize who Jesus is and come to realize what his coming meant for them. Secondly, there's the promise for the church in verse 18. The promise is this, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What a promise it is and oh how it has been debated over the years, even the centuries and millennia. Much debate's been had over who or what is the rock. I think it's fairly straightforward in that Peter's name means rock. In the Greek, it's Petra. And Jesus says, you are Petra, and on this, sorry, you are Petros, and on this Petra, I will build my church. They sound similar. They both mean rock or stone. They're not exactly the same words, but they're almost identical synonyms. Like in English, we say stone or rock almost interchangeably. I, I threw a stone, I threw a rock. No one's going to make much of the difference there between those two. And so Petros, Peter, is the rock, the Petra, upon which Jesus will build his church in some ways. Now, I know the Roman Catholic Church takes that to mean that there has been an unending succession of Peter's or popes ever since the first pope, Peter. I think that's wrong. And I think Peter can be seen as the rock in verse 18 without believing in apostolic secession or papacy, as Rome calls it. Peter had a unique role in Jesus' building program, but not a pope-like role. He wasn't, a, he wasn't infallible in what he spoke. You've got Paul rebuking Peter publicly and to his face for hypocrisy in Galatians 2. You have other pieces of evidence in the scriptures where, where Peter plays not a primary role, a leadership role, sure, but not a primary leadership role. There's the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 where, yes, Peter gives a speech, but he didn't convene the council. He didn't lead the meeting. He didn't even make the closing argument let alone unilaterally speak a decision into existence. You also have the evidence of 1 Peter, Peter's letter, where he addresses elders 
and refers to himself as a fellow elder. He's just one of the guys in a sense. So you get the point. Peter's not the first pope, and there's no such thing as a vicar of Christ on earth in human form. Peter, however, was, I think, the rock upon which Jesus would begin to build his church. Here are the pieces of evidence for this. Peter was the one who preached that first sermon in Acts, that momentous sermon in Acts on the day of Pentecost, where 3,000 were converted right there. Peter was the leading figure in the first half of the book of Acts. He was the instrument through which God would bring salvation, no holds barred, to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. And he, with other apostles in Ephesians 2, is referred to as the foundation of the household of God that Jesus is building with himself as the cornerstone. Jesus is the cornerstone, but the apostles were foundational to the building of the church, not least in their writing of the New Testament. So Peter is among the foundation of the apostles and somewhat unique even among them. Now what about that promise that Jesus will build his church? What's that mean? A few things we can note about that promise. One, it's interesting that church is used here. This is the first time in the New Testament that church is used. It's only one other time in Matthew. It's rare in the Gospels. It might feel like uh, an anachronism, like this is happening or being spoken of before it even exists. And in some ways, that's true. Again, that's why people refer to Matthew 16 as Jesus' charter for the church. Now, when we hear Jesus say, I will build my church, as we're reading along in Matthew 16, we hardly skip a beat. We think, yes, he's building his church. I go to a church. That church is part of a network of churches or, or maybe all together, churches in general that confess the gospel. That's the universal church. That's what Jesus is building. I get what he means. I will build my church. I'm seeing it happen. I know what a church is. I know it's not a building, it's people. He'll build his church. But it would have been a speed bump. It would have been peculiar. Not totally unfamiliar to the disciples who were hearing him speak it for the first time. They would have known that that's a word that's used in the Old Testament. The Greek translation of the Old Testament had that word ekklesia, church, assembly, gathering used oftentimes for Israel. They were the gathered ones. They were the assembly of the Lord. But I think Jesus' disciples would also have been aware of the fact that that word, ecclesia, was widely used at the time in the Roman world for political entities, for body politics, for assemblies or gatherings that would get together and publicly decide certain things. I'll just tuck that away for now. We'll come back to it. Another thing to note about this promise that Jesus will build his church, it's interesting that Jesus puts the word my in front of church. That would be blasphemous if he was not divine. Jesus is building the church, okay, church, that's used in the Old Testament, of Old Testament Israel. He's building the church, but now he's putting his name on it what used to be called the church of the Lord or the assembly of the Lord. Jesus is saying he's building his church. He's building a new gathering of people who are marked out now, 
not by ethnicity, not by geography, but simply by him, simply by identifying with him, by bearing his name. It's his church. They are people in the church that Jesus is building simply because they have come to confess, like Peter did, that Jesus is the Christ. It's his church. And also notice the surety of the promise. I will build my church. That's for sure. Mark it down. It's settled. And the gates of hell or Hades will not prevail against it. I'm not sure I've always spoken correctly about this. It really should be Hades in our Bible here. Hades will not prevail against Jesus building his church. The difference is Hades is just death. If it's hell, then okay, we can understand what that means. It means the forces of Satan will not prevail against Jesus building his church. I think that's how I've taken it throughout the years. I think instead, it's the gates of death will not prevail against Jesus building his church. That thing, death, that prevails against everyone and every created thing, it will not prevail against the church. Even though Christians die, they don't die, 1 Corinthians 15, right? Death has been swallowed up in victory. So though even death, which swallows up everything and keeps everything behind its gate with ironclad power, oh, that thing, death, will not penetrate the church. The church instead will swallow up death, and it will live and live and live. That's the promise for the church. And then thirdly, there's the power of the keys in verse 19. The power of the keys. And here's where it gets a little tricky. I will give you the keys of the kingdom, Jesus said. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What do keys do? They lock and unlock things. They open and close things. They let in and they lock out. There's authority that's implicit with keys. Authority is given when keys are handed over. I remember when I was hired by this church back 14 years ago. Before that, there was a time when I didn't have any keys to this building. I couldn't get in. I couldn't go into a broom closet if I needed to. And then all of a sudden, one day I was hired and I was given keys. I was given a key to my office and a master key to all the doors and a fob for the front door. All of a sudden, I had access. I could go anywhere. It's not that great of a privilege, mind you, but my kids thought it was very impressive. This whole idea of a master key that opens all the doors of the whole building. You can go anywhere. Well, they thought Dad was great and of course, it's no great achievement at all. But they understood the concept that keys are about rights and privileges and responsibilities. Isn't that why little kids want their own set of keys? Doesn't every parent usually do this where at some point the toddlers clamored for keys enough? And so you go through your house and you find all the useless keys that you can find and you put them on one key ring. Here, you have your keys now. And they put them in their little tyke car and they turn it, and they think it starts, and, and they pretend to have keys. Of course, we don't let them have real keys. We wouldn't give them our house keys or our car keys. No, they'll lose them. You shouldn't let toddlers lock things or unlock things. It's going to go badly. 
But that just proves the point. Keys are powerful things. We only give keys to kids when those keys don't work. Keys are all about rights and privileges and responsibilities. And the more important thing that those keys open, the more important thing the keys are. So get this. One day, Jesus said to Peter, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Just let that hit you. It'd be amazing if we heard of someone getting the keys to the White House. It'd be amazing to meet a man who has all the keys to Buckingham Palace. Well, how about the keys to the kingdom of heaven? These keys open heaven and close heaven. These keys let people in and lock people out. That's what's being talked about here. Remember, Jesus is building his church with people, with confessions. And when these confessions get Jesus right, the doors are open. And if a confession isn't right, if they have a wrong Jesus, the wrong view of salvation, the gates aren't open. Some will be brought in. Some will remain out. It's the work of binding and loosing to switch metaphors slightly. These keys bind up and they let go. Peter can exercise this authority. Why? Not because he's the smartest guy in the room, but because he now knows the litmus test. The litmus test is who do you say that, he, that Jesus is? And the right answer is Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and all that that means. So if you see him aright and you confess him before the world, then you can hear what Jesus said to Peter about you as well. You are blessed. This is the very stuff with which Jesus is building his church, confessions. Now you might wonder at this point, you might be scratching your head a bit and thinking, this seems to say a little bit more than... It should say, it can't possibly mean here that Peter decides who gets to go to heaven or that Peter makes decisions and heaven follows in his lead. You're right, that, that can't be right. It can't be correct. It might help for you to know that the Greek grammar here is it's unusual. It's very unusual. Without getting too deep into the woods of putting labels on top of grammar, uh, let me just say this. There's, at this point, a kind of mix of future tense and past tense. So the New American Standard captures this when it says, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will have, shall have been bound in, in heaven. Or shall be loosed in heaven, rather. So do you hear that? It shall, future tense, have been. Heaven isn't responding to Peter's decisions. Peter is declaring the heavenly decision. He's aware of what this is, what he's looking at, what the gospel is. And whether this person has it or not, and he can say, with heaven's authority, you're in. You're not in. 
Think of Peter's sermon in Acts 2, or really any of the sermons in the book of Acts. They all seem to have this typical flow where there's the sermon, then there's some response, and then there's a response to the response. There's some sort of declaration by the one who preaches to say to those who either believe, you're in, welcome aboard. Now get baptized and and join the church, and here's what you do. Or... What? You will not believe? You hard-hearted people, how long will he put up with you? Don't think you're inside. You're not. You're outside. That's the work of binding and loosing. And when Peter or any other preacher in the book of Acts gives the gospel, sees a response, and responds to that response, they are binding what has been bound in heaven. They are loosing what has been loosed in heaven, and they are doing it with heaven's authority. Peter can say what it means to be in or out. Jesus alone is the litmus test. Who do you say that he is? It's just incredible here, isn't it? This is massive stuff that human beings can speak heavenly, eternal realities that heaven and earth can match, not, not perfectly so, not infallibly so, but legitimately so and reliably so. Those who know the gospel can say that is the gospel and can say that isn't the gospel. Those who know the gospel can say, I hear the gospel when you speak it to me. Blessed are you. Now, I've said that Jesus gave the keys of the kingdom to Peter. I think that's clear. Uh, Jesus says, I give to you. That's singular. It's referring to Peter. And I've also said that there isn't any evidence in the Bible for the keys of the kingdom being passed on to a line of popes that come after Peter. And so we ask then, who holds the keys today? Who's doing the binding and loosing now that Peter and the apostles have been dead these 1,900 years or so? Who has the right to represent heaven and to open its gates or to say to someone, no, you're not in? Where does the buck stop? Particularly when it comes to marking the line between the world and the church. Well, there are basically two options for us Protestants. Either the keys of the kingdom have been given to the elders of the church, or the keys of the kingdom have been given to the church as a whole, including the elders, and the elders help lead in the use of these keys and in the binding and loosing. If it's the elders of the church that received the keys of the kingdom, then Peter was representing leadership there in Acts 16. He was representing apostles, and there's a trickle down to elders. But if Peter, sorry, if the keys of the kingdom have been given to the church, then Peter in Acts 16 was representing all confessors of the gospel. And anyone who knows the gospel can be in on what the gospel is and who has it. And to find the answer to which of those it is, let's turn to Matthew 18 in your Bibles. Matthew 18, this is our fourth point, what we might call the procedures and people involved. 
Matthew 18, verses 15 to 20 is the famous or infamous church discipline passage. It doesn't have that word keys in it, but it does have binding and loosing in it. There's so much similarity, in fact. What Matthew 18 is doing is actually showing us how binding and loosing is done on a practical level. So if you felt like Matthew 16 seemed a little cryptic to you, rest assured that Matthew 18 gets a little more concrete and I think clarifies Matthew 16. Here in Matthew 18, Jesus explains that those necessary steps involved when in the church there's a brother or sister who for a time identified with Jesus, for a time was thought to be in the church and of Christ, and then they go astray, they continue to sin, they will not repent, they will not listen to the pleas of their brothers and sisters, and eventually Jesus says a declaration needs to be made. The church needs to say to this person that they're not a Christian. Christians aren't perfect, but they do repent. They're not allergic to repentance. They keep at it. And habitual, stubborn, long-term unrepentance is the clear mark of those who aren't Christians. And at some point, that needs to be said to someone lovingly, lest they continue with false assurance. But who needs to tell it to them? Who needs to say it? Who's going to declare it? Who's going to represent heaven and bear this verdict? Where does the buck stop? Well, Matthew 18, verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it'll be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Up until recently, our elders have assumed that the buck stops with the elders of the church when it comes to matters of membership and discipline. Who's in, who's out. We have assumed that we have your support in decisions we've made about who we welcome in and who we need to occasionally put out. And we've had your support. Don't think for a minute that any of this discussion today is because there's a problem that needs fixing. We never went into our study trying to fix a problem, but trying to figure out what the Bible says and work our way up from there. There's no problem that needs fixing. You guys have been wonderful in your support of decisions that we have uh, communicated to you. But we're now convinced that that wasn't quite right. So let me see if I can show you what, what we might call the more congregational elements in Matthew 18. Look down in your Bibles. Notice after step one where there's one-to-one -one confrontation. 
Notice there, it's ground up. It's just brother to brother. It's as it happens. It's organic. It's, it's not top-down with leadership, at least not yet. There's not yet either top-down leadership when it comes to step two, where two or three go along to plead with this wayward brother or sister. By the way, parentheses here, these stages go very slow at our church. We say we exhaust one stage before we ever move to the next. So if this looks like, you know, by morning there's one step, by lunchtime there's a second step, by third you're out of here or something. No, that's far, far from the truth. But at some point it has to get corporate. Now we have long assumed that elders should be somewhere in the mix here. To go from two or three witnesses pleading with a brother or sister to forsake their sin and to repent, to then tell it to the church, we assume, needs leadership involvement. For one, because we don't have open mics in our worship services or, or any kind of meeting for that matter. Uh, we don't invite you to email the whole church, to tell the church that you don't like so-and-so and you think he's going to hell. That's not helpful. We will lead in this, and we will continue to lead in this. But at some point, we tell the church, just as we have before, in order that the church may join others in pleading with someone. Of course, there are going to be those in the church who are closer to that wayward brother than others are. Not every one of us should go at this person at the same rate and with the same intensity because none of us have the same exact relationship as others do. But generally, the church has to know and generally the church has to be on watch and in prayer and, and where there's opportunity, pleading. He needs to listen to the church, it says. But if they will not listen to the church, notice verse 17, let him be to you. You? You who? The church. Let him be to you. Let him be to you is some sort of deliberation and decision. Let him be to you, the church, the individuals of the church, an unbeliever. That's what's meant by tax collector and Gentile. Just These are categories for, for unbelievers. Let him be to you what he seems to be. That's a loving thing to do. Don't say peace, peace when there is no peace. Don't dismiss him from your life completely. No, we still want him around. We still want to be friends. We'll still, we'll still be around so that the gospel might one day become clear and really experienced if they're not yet his. If they will not listen to the church, notice that church is here again, this important word, ecclesia. Remember, it means assembly, gathering. Remember, it referred back to Old Testament Israel as an assembly, but Jesus is doing something new with this assembly that bears his name. Remember that this word ecclesia had Roman political, governmental implications and significance. It was a deliberate a deliberative body. It was a body politic. It made decisions. And that no doubt would have been in the mind, partly anyway, in these apostles and disciples who heard this for the very first time. We're just so used to church, we can't imagine anything other than church is church. But they were hearing something like Jesus say, I will build my Congress. What? 
The gates of hell won't prevail against my Congress. If he won't listen to Congress, my Congress, well, let him be to you. We see decisions here being made. Verse 17, let him be to you. Verse 18, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Almost verbatim from Matthew 16. We've got to put these passages together and help each interpret the other. It's almost verbatim, the exact same language with only one difference. And here, here's the kicker. Listen carefully to this. In Matthew 16, when it says, whatever you bind, the you is singular, referring to Peter. And in Matthew 18, when it says, whatever you bind, the you is plural, referring to the church. And that plurality just continues all the way through. Tell it to the church. Let him be to you, the church. Whatever you all, plural, the church, bind or loose will have been bound or loosed in heaven. Yes, Matthew 16 emphasizes Peter's special role in Jesus building his church. But the keys don't vanish when Peter dies or other apostles leave the scene. And so because of that, Jesus, not long after giving his charter for the church and designating Peter as a unique foundation, he gave his disciples more broadly particulars about how that power, how those keys, how this binding and loosing is actually done in a local church. Matthew 18, on the whole, is directed to disciples, not just apostles. That's chapter 18, verse 1. And you can see Jesus addressing these disciples and how they should be in community together throughout the whole of Matthew 18. In verses 1 through 6, he's telling them, you've got to be servants to one another. In verses 7 through 9, he's saying, don't cause any of your brothers to sin. In verses 10 to 14, he tells them, if one of your brothers goes astray, the rest of you have to go after him. And then our passage, verses 15 to 20, he says, if someone sins against you and will not repent, here are four steps that you need to take. And then verses 21 and following, what if they don't, what if they do repent? How many times do we have to forgive them? And Jesus basically says, uh, infinity, how about that? You have to keep forgiving if they repent. This isn't a section devoted to leadership, is it? There's no mention of elders. That doesn't mean, I say again, that elders aren't wisely involved in the process, especially when it goes public. But, but what we've come to conclude as elders is that we as elders, as leaders, should lead the church in their, in our use of the keys of the kingdom. The keys have been given to the whole church, not to the elders of a church. The buck stops with us. With all of us. We've decided that anyone who confesses Christ and finds themselves in the church of Jesus has the ability and authority and assignment with the rest of the church to come to agreement on what is and is not the gospel and who and who does not have it. The who and the what of the gospel. Look at verse 19 and 20 as the evidence, I think, continues to pile up in the same direction. 
Again, I say to you, if two of you agree, you have to come to agreement. On earth, about anything they ask, it'll be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now, these verses are often quoted apart from their biblical context. and They're often applied or attached to prayer meetings or any kind of corporate meeting, any time of meeting of the church. Jesus is there, even if it's a small group of two or three It's true, but these verses are right here in this context of what we call discipline, about what to do with a wayward brother or sister. They're tied to that. And so the prayers being made in verse 19 are about this difficult situation of a brother or sister who will not repent. And the church needs to come to agreement on that situation with the sinning brother. And then verse 20 assures the church that when they pray about these difficult things, that Jesus will be with them and he will help them. And again, we ask, who will he help? Who will he be with? The whole church, with the whole gathering, those gathered in my name, those who agree on earth. They can be assured of Jesus' presence and help, and they can be confident that when they speak, they speak with heaven's authority. Again, not fallibly, not infallibly, but genuinely, reliably. For those who know the gospel and are biblical as a church, generally speaking, we can say they speak what heaven says. Now, you might wonder why it speaks of only two agreeing or two or three are gathered in verse 19. You might wonder, is this like a subcommittee for discipline? Is this a a small group, or is this just a really small church? Well, I think it's a hypothetically small church. Two or three. Jesus is reducing it down to the lowest possible denominator of what a church is. What's a church? It's a gathering. So imagine two missionary couples, four adults on a mission field, in a totally unreached city. That's a church. Their home-sending church is their sending church. It's not their church. If you're here only once every two years, that's not church. Where you gather, that's church. These four people on a mission field are a church. Now imagine one of these four deserts it all, deserts spouse, the Lord, What then? By the way, that is completely hypothetical. We have two families in a foreign mission field, and this is not remotely about them. They're doing well. What if one goes astray? Well, the closest one confronts, but then very quickly two join in on the confrontation. The three Plead with this wayward brother or sister to stop, to turn back to the Lord, to give up their sin. And if they will not repent, then these three gather together. They pray. They trust that Jesus is with them, that he will guide them. And then they need to tell the one of the four, we don't think you're a Christian Based on this, what we've seen, we say it in love, we plead with you again. So even Jesus' numbers are not that far-fetched. Even two or three gathering in his name for this kind of decision can represent heaven. 
By the way, Matthew 18 isn't saying that someone who really was a real Christian can somehow lose it and become a non-Christian. But one who used to call himself a Christian, one who we used to identify as a brother or sister in a gospel confessor, can begin to show that they never really had the real thing, that they're of the second soil or the third soil of Jesus' four-soil parable. The second soil, oh, it looks good, it looks promising, it looks like there's life. But then the sun scorches it, persecution comes, they won't stick around. It wasn't the real thing. The third soil, it looks promising, it looks real. But then cares and worries of the world and desires to get rich come in and their faith is choked out, proving that it wasn't real. It's 1 John 2.19. They went out from us because they were not of us. If they had been of us, they no doubt would have continued with us. But they went out from us to prove that not all are of us. Now it is heartbreaking to come to that conclusion. We struggle through it every time we have to say that to someone. And so we do it together. I think that's what Jesus taught us to do, to do it together. Jesus put this lofty work of binding and loosing and representing heaven in the job description of everyone who confesses Christ, of every member of a church. We've come to realize that the buck stops with us all, that the keys of the kingdom were not just handed down from Peter to apostles and elders, but to the church, to all of us. We've come to conclude that those verses about elders leading should still be in our Bibles and we should still like them. We haven't traded new verses for old verses or ripped parts of our Bible out. Hebrews 13, 17 talks about the church obeying its leaders. Acts 20, 1 Peter 5, on and on it goes. We believe leaders lead. But we've just come to realize that leaders also need to lead the church in its responsibility of declaring what the gospel is and who has it. Membership and discipline. We haven't concluded that all the authority now lies in the church as opposed to the elders or in the majority of the church. We've come to conclude that there are spheres of authority. There are overlapping spheres of authority. And one of those spheres, we suspect, has been slightly neglected over the years. So I'm sure you wonder, what does this look like then? What are the changes practically that we're talking about? we haven't figured all that out yet, at least not the fine details. We've decided to announce it to you today as a conclusion that we've come to biblically and theologically. We've decided to take the next few months to work out the details of what it looks like in an actual meeting together, and we plan to implement that decision, those, those new things, on, in January of 2018. Some things that it will most likely mean is... Uh, three or four members' meetings per year after a Lord's Supper where we do this binding and loosing stuff, membership and discipline. It probably means adding some kind of mechanism to ascertaining e agreement in these meetings. 
Now, you might call that a vote, if you like, ascertaining agreement. Did you see how sneaky that was? I, I don't like that word vote. I really don't. I think people think of American democracy and infighting, and, and it's, it's not very helpful. Voting goes all the way back to the time of Aristotle. We Americans, uh, we weren't the first to come up with it. We in the church can figure out where there's agreement without having, without having to use the word vote. I, I propose we, we talk about seeking affirmation. In the past, we've assumed your affirmation and support to proposals we've made. Starting in January, we want to overtly and concretely seek your affirmation regarding the who and the what of the gospel. That doesn't mean that we will give you more details about someone's sin when we're in a Matthew 18 scenario. Just as we have in the past, we will ask you to trust elders who know more about that situation than you do and then more than the church needs to know. We think we need the whole church, though, to agree about who is in and who's out. In many ways, that's a small shift. In many ways, it's simply tap, tacking on one little thing to an already pastorally hands-on process that leads to someone being outside of our midst. But in many ways, it's also a big and important shift. A couple of days ago, I was talking with one of our members and telling him about some of this stuff, giving him a preview. And I asked him, how do you think the church is going to receive this? And how is this hitting you? What do you think? And he said, well, this makes things more serious for the average member. We can't just sit on the sidelines now like we're just passive observers to the elders' decisions about people's souls. It means all of us are in on it, and that's pretty serious, and it is. And so we'll continue to talk about it next week. We'll continue to talk about it at our elders' Q&A on the last Wednesday of this month. Once a year, we have an elders' Q&A in place of our Lord's Supper service. Put it on your calendar, the 27th, 6.30 p.m. Come with your questions about this then. We'll do an FAQ page in the meantime. Try to anticipate some questions that may arise. We know that this morning's message could never cover all of the questions that might be on your mind. So just keep track of them. Uh, know that there will be venues and opportunities for questions to get answered in, in due time. Uh, be patient with us. Bear with us. We will get all the questions answered, but not all today. Let me close with four questions for us to consider. Not for everyone, but maybe for some here, I ask, who do you say that Jesus is? Is he the Christ, the Savior, the King, the Lord, the One? Is he the answer for you? Well, he must be, or, or friend, you're outside. You're outside salvation, you're outside the kingdom, you're outside Jesus, you're, you're outside the gospel, you're outside hope. Come in. The keys of the kingdom have been given and the doors are open and we invite you to come to Jesus for grace and mercy but understand who he is and understand him aright. Let me know if I can help you after the service today or others up front who are here to pray or counsel with you or answer any questions. Make sure you know who Jesus is and who he is for you specifically. 
Secondly, I ask, are you overtly attached to a local church, to do church and to be the church? At our church, we call that joining. We call that membership. We call that a covenant of fellowship. Call it whatever you want. It doesn't have to be at this church. But I hope and pray that you are overtly connected to a church that knows you want to be held accountable and expects you to hold others accountable. That's what we see all through the New Testament. Not floating Christians amidst the city, but people in gatherings, assemblies, the church. Thirdly, I ask, if you think all this sounds far too serious and intrusive, I ask, what's the alternative? Jesus said this stuff. We didn't make it up. I mean, what are you going to do? Are you going to be selective with God's word? Are you going to go to a place that ignores some of these passages? This is what Jesus said the church is going to do. This is his charter for it. This is his description of it. You can't buffet it. Lastly, I ask, Christian, will you today find fresh an invigorating wonder and awe at the surety of Jesus building his church and at the awesome responsibility that he gives to every church and every church member, regardless of education or ethnicity or past or clothes or what part of town you live in. None of that matters. We're all priests and kings in his kingdom. And he's given us great and lofty work. We open heaven's gates when we proclaim the gospel and admit baptized people into our church. And we represent heaven when we acknowledge that someone will not enter in and we tell them that that's trouble and it's outside and they have to come in. It's a great responsibility. It's a great privilege to have the keys. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for giving us agreement in this body on the gospel. We thank you for unifying us in so many ways. We pray for wisdom and unction in being the church better, in doing church together more and better than we have. Lord, help us just right now to stand in awe of your great job description for the church. Lord, let us marvel that we are ambassadors for you. Lord, may we be bold in this world with the gospel. May we be loving and truthful towards each other in the church about sin and grace. And may you, Lord Jesus, continue to build your church. We thank you. Even the gates of death will not prevail against you building your church. So now with great confidence we sing and we pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.